TBA 21 Academy Radio. You are listening to Magical Fresh and Salty Conversations, TBA 21 Academy's podcast series exploring ecological and magical perspectives on bodies of water. This series of conversations reflects on the anthropogenic transformations of marine ecosystems, leaning on the innovative trajectories of science, technology, and art. Through performance, expeditions, sound, film, and image making, the contributing artists engage with the underwater world in encounters with scientists and thinkers, proposing a world reimagined from within the waters. Whether in the fictional, scientific, or science fictional realm, an interspecies future lies ahead of us. The Problem of Imagination, the Triangle of Magic, Imagination, Science. How do we imagine nature in the time of climate change? Can we redefine scientific knowledge through art? Do fiction and imagination have a reality-altering potential that could help us surpass the dichotomy of problem versus solution? In this episode, our guests examine three concepts that have historically framed the notion of nature. The hosts, artists-in-residence Diego de las and Leonor Serrano-Rivas, engage in a conversation with philosopher and writer Federico Campagna and professor of history of art, science, and folk practices John Tresh. In their conversation, Federico Campagna and John Tresh explore some of the key ideas that run through Diego Delas and Leonor Serrano Rivas's residency in Venice, such as the role of imagination, magic, and technology in interpreting the universe around us, and the power of fiction from the pre-scientific period to today. When Diego and I arrived in Venice to start researching and look into the lagoon system, Venice and the age of Aqua Alta and the Museum, since the challenge involved geoengineering solutions, we proposed a take on the problematic through the lens of natural magicians, culture, and so on. Our methods for the project was somehow condensed on a performative event during a single night, and it comprised a boat trip with a rower on the silent canals at night under a tendino. Tendino is something like a boat canopy or a canvas cover. And you see the boats standing on the canals with the cover, that's a tendino. And inside the boat, we had an instrument of imagination as to witness the depths of the canal beds through a sort of periscope. So there was a boat, the rower, that was a soundtrack, the tendino, and then inside the instrument. And the depths of the canal arising through the lens were an HD 16 millimeter film shot on Petri dishes. It was fate. We, we saw that in our studio, with magnetic particles and pigments and water and also oil solutions, very chemical. And hence, 
Breathings of the Moon aimed at giving voice and agency to the waters in such complex system as the Venetian Lagoon. Perhaps we tried to draw a triangle composed of the following size. Magic, imagination, but also science. These concerns have somehow aimed the project and animated the project as in this journey we aimed at arriving at some sort of translation, transmission, a transfer of knowledge as a process, turning research-based data into matter, into practice. So for our conversation with you today, we were wondering how would the confluence between science and magic and imagination draw perhaps an alternative realm to that of mere codification assimilation deployed by raw exclusive science, some other space where we could scrutinize our reality in a different voice or manner. And having said this, the first question goes for the two of you. Somehow, the history of science and that of scientific ideas has occupied extensively your research, including the revision of the various schools of science in the mid-20th century, but also enlightenment and natural magic and antiquity periods. And in our research, we went back to the pre-scientific period where magicians and crafters developed devices and instruments. No? They were using matter and inventions, things, artifacts, crafts that somehow influenced the scientific method as we know it today. We were interested and we are interested in, in that moment, in a time where roles were somehow inverted to what is there today. And he goes a question, do you think perhaps that we can still learn from that moment and today look at makers or fiction makers to redefine scientific knowledge through the use of art, through art making, through a practice? I think it's very interesting to look at the tradition of so-called magic, so pre-scientific science. The two often are combined or are seen as very similar many reasons. One of them is that genealogical reason in the sense that what we have today as science derives from there without as much disruption as we often think. But I think another reason also in reference to art makers that look at this experience is twofold. The first aspect is ontological, if you like. And a quality of ancient science and magic is often to assign an agency to forces that for a long time in modernity, have been believed to be dead. This is interesting for us in terms of looking into the future, because if we think about how we can innovate the idea of scientific knowledge, when we say scientific knowledge, we are saying a pleonasm, because science has to do with knowledge. The, the word itself means knowledge, so it's knowledge, knowledge. One way we can do it is by modifying the parameters of knowledge. Another way of doing it is by modifying the idea of who is endowed with intellect, with understanding, with knowledge, from where this thinking comes from. In ancient magical traditions, by assigning an agency, a life, 
also to material or non-organic objects, we start seeing how we can expand the idea of who does the job of thinking. By considering a broader understanding of who does the job of thinking, who is endowed with knowledge, then we have an idea of science that is not entirely coming from the human perspective as the only ones endowed with intellect and with knowledge, but that is an orchestra, so to say, of minds. And these minds are partly human, partly animal, partly from the vegetable realm, but also partly having to do with material forces, what we call matter itself. So that's one aspect expanding the orchestra of the thinkers. This changes the idea of knowledge and of science. The other aspect, I think, very important in terms of ancient science and magic, but also the way in which art relates to it, has to do with the attitude that you had in antiquity of personalizing forces, personalizing abstract concepts. So instead of only talking about them in abstract terms, so with mathematical formula. At the same time as doing that, they were also assigning to them mythological names. We find this, for example, in the history of astronomy, very much in the works of Giorgio de Santillana and Hertha Vordechen. And this is a methodological innovation for us, for us today, of course, uh, in the sense that it allows us to develop a language when talking about science that doesn't want to remain only on the level of a pure abstraction, but that accepts also that it can create a countercant uh, at the level of narrative, or what we call today mythology. I would complement those arguments for why the tradition of magic, and particularly natural magic, is relevant now um, in thinking about the kinds of imbroglios we find ourselves in. By expanding your point about the ontological aspect of the many magical approaches to the world that preceded what we see as modern science. There's a phrase in current ecological thinking about being in a world that's after nature, post-nature, that the assumptions about what the natural world is that came to us from the 17th century onward after the, the scientific revolution, that we somehow have to get out of that view of nature. And what that view of nature is in a very quick summary, is something that is material, inert, right? Doesn't have life and agency, is mechanical, that only works by efficient causality, where it's billiard balls or particles bouncing off each other, and objective, that it stands outside of us. So um, that is the nature that we inherited from the scientific revolution of the 17th century. And many people are saying, well, we have to challenge our understandings of what matter is, see it as potentially alive, of what mechanism it is, see it as having possibly teleological dimensions, being uh, involved in circular causality, also get beyond our understanding of what objectivity is, recognize that the processes that we're studying are processes that we've altered, that we're part of, that we're caught up in. What's remarkable about the period of natural magic in the 16th and early 17th century, if we pin the the so-called scientific revolution arbitrarily down to about 1650, in the decades before it, there is an explosion of different approaches, calling themselves magic, calling themselves natural magic, to this thing called nature. And in a way, just as we're now in a post-nature, a post-natural world, that was a pre-natural world. Now, of course, the term nature is used by these scholars, by these magicians and these scientists. They call it natural magic to distinguish it from demonic or spiritual magic. But what is very striking in someone like Della Porta or Kircher in a slightly different way, who, who you mentioned, 
they use the term nature all of the time. They insist on nature being a connected entity, a unified entity, much like in the 17th century. But the way in which that entity is unified is very different than it will be for someone like a Descartes or a Newton. What binds nature together is tissues and relations of sympathy and antipathy. And if it strikes you that sympathy and antipathy are rather vague notions, that's part of the beauty of it. That's part of what I think is relevant, that there isn't a single kind of fixed causality that they were projecting onto nature in the way that the 17th century natural philosophers did. There are connections. There's an assumption of nature being a totality, being a whole. Della Porta speaks of nature as a living thing, as an organism with parts with a head and arms and legs. But that totality, what binds it together is many different kinds of phenomena, many different kinds of relations. And what you also see in both Delaporta and Kierker and many, many other thinkers who are informed by the, the Neoplatonic views that are being rediscovered from the 15th century onward in figures like Ficino, what they often share is not only a reference to nature as this kind of living totality connected by sympathies, but also a great epistemological humility. They know nature exists, that it is massive, that it is complex, that it is incredibly interconnected, that we are part of it, that it has many aspects that resemble us, that it's susceptible to anthropomorphism, susceptible to mythologization, but that it is still something that we can know parts of and yet never know in its totality. There's a kind of apophatic restriction on the ways in which they talk about nature. That is a sense that it's beyond what anyone can know in its completeness. So this question is for Federico, but it's really for both of you. For us, going back in time and situating our methodology in the 16th and 17th century has given us the tools to modify our current reading of reality and the ways in which we confront some effect of climate crisis. We, maybe we all here, believe that modifying fiction can somehow alter or affect our reality. We as artists deploy different types of fiction in order to mediate with our own context. We define fiction as this mediator. And in the performance we presented, titled Readings of the Moon, we activated these fictions through instruments, through embodying practices, through new visual narratives on water. Going back in time was facilitating and actually helping us to look forward. So the question here being, Do you think knowledge can somehow enter into a non-circular but elliptic, elliptic because every time we turn around, we're going deeper into knowledge? So from a non-circular but elliptic format, where by looking back, we are in fact looking forward? Well, of course, when we talk about back and forward in time, we're talking about arbitrary notions. It's a bit like saying whether the north is up or down in a map. So back and forth in the sense that the future is in front of us and the past is behind us. These are arbitrary ideas. They depend very much on the metaphysics of time that we entertain in a particular moment. 
one thing that it's, I think, interesting when looking at the past and creating a familiarity with uh, notions that come from previous times is the implicit understanding that we have something in common. And what we have in common is not just our shared humanity and shared conditions and so on and so forth, but mostly the fact that we are all past. To a certain extent, we the present is already the past. So I think there is an intuition that we also speak from the past. Everything that we produce already comes from a certain past, and thus we are already together with that family of ancient thinkers. And in a sense, our voice speaking towards the future is together with all the voices in the past. Since we, we are talking about um, mythological figurations, I think there is an image that can come to mind, and it's the churning of the sea of milk. It's an image that you have in, in Hinduism, in Hindu mythology. Back in the days, the two main inhabitants of the universe, the gods and the demons, the Deva and the Asura, were starving, and they had to get some nectar. And this nectar was in the ocean of darkness. To get it, the two of them, the two parties, the usually enemies, combine together, ally, take a huge snake, attach it to a, a mountaintop reversed, and they start churning the milk by moving the snake back and forth. And so the mountaintop starts spinning, and from the ocean of darkness, this nourishment comes up. This is, I think, an interesting image because you have two opposing forces that stir into this absolute darkness by doing this constant movement back and forth. And this is precisely how they gain the, the nectar of immortality. Of course, the moment they get it, then they start fighting again, and this is another problem. But I think it's possible to imagine in this way the coexistence and the simultaneous use of past and future. Let's carry on with the topic, John, because you have studied different representations of the cosmos, um, visions of the world, um, in painting, scientific instruments, a detailed list of cosmograms that through the history of art and science, um, those visions of the cosmos perhaps reflect modes of regulating the earth and so the human relationship with nature and its resources. But when we first proposed the idea of an exploration, because we were very insistent on the idea of having and making a real expedition, maybe we were naive enough to think that perhaps embarking towards the unknown mm, could happen on different scales, on the micro and the macro, and especially for it to be apprehended in a different way or from a different perspective. So to which extent the notion of expedition, would you say, and experiential voyages have fueled the creation of new cosmograms? The notion of cosmograms, there's a tendency to think of it as something that's quite fixed and stable. And there are an infinity of examples, but some of the ones that are the most visible are ones that are really carved in stone, that are very heavy and are monumental, built not to move. Um, things like the Hagia Sophia. People construct representations of the cosmos often with the intention of keeping that cosmos and the social order that is represented within it and the natural order that's represented in it as fixed as possible. But as you point out, there is a, a great deal of interplay or of a dialectic between the cosmos as it's drawn and the process of experience and expedition that 
brings it into being, that makes it visible for the first time. And all kinds of play of temporal scales and geographical scales, spatial and temporal scales. But in the modern world, of course, expedition and experience are, are part of what's going on in constructing the cosmic grams that appear. There's an entire tradition, a whole uh, massive printed genre of cosmographies from the 16th century that are bound and constantly evolving collections of images of all the different places of the world. And that's directly tied to the voyages of exploration, the voyages of conquest. Every time a new city is mapped or discovered or encountered, a new leaf is added to that cosmography. So they are static. They appear to be static, but they're constantly expanding. They're constantly shifting. I think the, the project that this discussion is part of um, brought in Frederica Aituati and her work on, on the 17th century and the 16th century really focuses uh, nicely on the way in which technologies of scale, microscopes and telescopes, as well as various fictions or narratives of voyage all go together as ways of domesticating and bringing to the human scale all the, the very, very small, the very, very large, the distant in space and the distant in time, to bring these distant worlds onto a tabletop space that can be understood, explored with the tools of, of a scholar sitting in a library, sitting, sitting at a desk. And with telescopes and microscopes, as well as um, maps of various kinds and techniques of printing, all these outlandish and very distant worlds can be brought into a single space. And, and I see in the dispositive of your artwork, the periscope, the, the simulation of underwater worlds, the voyage, the ship that you travel on, that same kind of fusing together of, of different scales, different worlds, and trying to house them within a kind of mobile tabernacle, a kind of new tent that's in motion in a single world. So yes, absolutely. There's a, a close relation between expedition, um, exploration, and cosmography and cosmograms, the realization of those, those expeditions. Oh, okay, because um, certainly, surely our intention was to move from a land-centric approach to a water-centric approach in order to overpass anthropocentrism. We really wanted to have water placed at the center of the project. So if a cosmogram, John, was done nowadays where we include an even center, that cosmology in the very ocean, in the in-between waters like the Venice Lagoon that we are taking as reference, or that we are looking at, um, what would it be then, this representation? Do you have an example where the waters are perceived beyond their trading system? It's entirely possible to imagine a world where you start from the water and the exception is the land rather than the other way around. There's discussion of Melanesian cartography and travel plans that are very much uh, ways of mapping directions between islands that are in motion, where the lands are not what's static. What's static is simply being on the boat. And it's what appears to you as you travel in a certain vector towards certain constellations, along with the certain winds and tides. You are always there at the center of it, and you are moving on the water, but all the different land masses come towards you as you redirect your ship uh, towards them, according to these other uh, coordinates of sky and water and tides. So that's one possible example of drawing the world from within the aquatic element. There's lots of crappy science fiction, water world. There's a kind of disorientation that helps there. And that's grounded on a classic of science fiction, the Jules Verne's 
20,000 Leagues Under the Sea with this uh, the Nautilus, which is piloted by Captain Nemo. He's no one. He's an anarchist floating in this uncharted domain and uncharted element, seeing the world in this kind of war against civilization from deep beneath it and fighting with squids along the way. This imaginary is is very much out there to be explored. But I think thinking about the verticality of it is very useful to think, what does the world look like looking from below, looking from not just the depths of land, but well below sea level, the bottom of the ocean, or maybe even from the Earth's core. And again, thinking of Kierker and Delaporta, Kierker himself undertook several expeditions to Delaporta's homelands. He did this fantastic uh, voyage to, to Naples and was very interested in Vesuvius, peering into the earth from the edge of the volcano. And on the basis of, of that, he drew up various diagrams, speculations of what the world under the earth must look like and conceived of an entire earth scale Venice of canals, of water and fire connecting all the major whirlpools and oceans and, and volcanoes of the world, as well as the mines, generating water, heat, generating metals and gold, um, all connected in these intersecting flows that populate the world beneath our feet. And I think there is something very provocative in the suggestion of the kind of periscopic artwork that you're undertaking to flip, to turn upside down and look at what the world would look like if our feet were in the air, like we were plants and our heads were underneath the ground or there in the water. That exercise is out there in many places. And I see what you're doing as contributing to that um, ongoing dialogue with what would it be like to be an aquatic creature? What would it be like to see the earth from deep within it? Actually, Federico, you mentioned the potentiality of water, and that links very nicely to the next question. Also earlier, when you were talking about domesticating somehow the scales to be able to approach them. So, this question could be also for both of you. In this project, as you know, we treated water as an instrument, as the lens that was our main approach. Water was in the center. So our main intention through the use of the film was somehow to give the lagoons in between waters an agency, a voice. We created a lagoon within the limits of the water tank. That was our methodology. Um, a microscale that could somehow anticipate the movement of the microscale of the lagoon. We animated water rhythms through magnets and pigments, and by looking into the periscopes inside a boat, it could really be seen as if those were in fact the lagoon's new rhythms, what we then call, or the so-called rhythms. The microscale of the periscope suspended time during the course of the performance, created a new cosmos on a different scale, the microscale of the lagoon. This was our hypothesis our project in general. So the question here, as I said for both of you, do you think that this kind of experience can somehow subvert the orders of the micro and the macro? The micro being us and the macro being this overall reality. The connection between the micro and the macro is uh, uh, one of the central tropes of, uh, of a certain way of understanding everything, science, the cosmos, 
famously in Hermes Trismegistus, as above, so below, translated, by the way, for the first time in English by Sir Isaac Newton. I think it's interesting to understand it in the terms suggested by John earlier when talking about sympathies and antipathies, that they have something that connects them. This something that connects them connects everything, connects numbers, letters, gods, astral movements, movements of the soul, illnesses, political dimensions, and all these things are totally connected. Everything is commensurable with each other. And I don't think it's just about subverting the relationship between micro and micro. I think it's more about expanding our vocabulary and expanding our understanding of the dimensions that make up reality and of the connections that somehow can be drawn between different dimensions of reality. So it's more like an optical instrument. If we understand better this the connection between macro and micro, it's really just an optical instrument that allows us to see uh, a broader universe more complex in a way, but also more simple because it's connected by having the same mother. I like the optical instrument as a tool of scale. How do you bring those light rays in from the very distant and wide into a manageable space, into a recognizable space? And of course, there's a tendency in the history of optics to link light and proportion to number and, and geometry in a very abstract way. A physical level, the way in which the elements interact, the way in which bodies interact, the way, the way in which the different parts of your body, one's own body, interact with each other to set the, the temperament of the day, the temperament, your mood, your mode um, at any given moment over the course of the day. And interestingly, astrology and Galenic medicine was very tuned in to that distribution of elements, distribution of properties, the balance and the proportion amongst them over the course of the day, over the course of a lifetime, and lining those up proportionally with the state of the heavens, with the state of, of the elements in, on the earth. Some of the objects that they made, some of the most remarkable artworks that are also scientific instruments that they made were early weather vanes or thermoscopes or thermostats, which were glass instruments that showed the movement up and down of some fluid according to ambient weather conditions. For them, you could that was a way of measuring humidity, temperatures, all at once, but it was also a, a way of seeing the constant movements and interactions, the separations and rejoinings of the fundamental elements of the cosmos. One of these authors, Cornelius Drebel, made a thermoscope that, that he toured around Europe that he called a perpetual motion device because it responded, it moved up and down according to the movements of the elements, the, the surrounding humidity and, and air pressure. Someone who's written about this, Vera Keller, called it, it shouldn't be called a thermoscope, it's a cosmoscope. It's representing, but more than representing, it's actually embodying, it is the changes in these ongoing elemental transformations. And where there's a kind of ethics or where there's a kind of subversion or a kind of anthropotechnics that we can pick up from that, I think it's at the level of internal awareness of those changing states. When there's a kind of sense of sinking, when there's a sense of elevation, the kind of distillation that's going on in the body and mind from day to day, the kind of naturing nature that has these kind of moments of darkness and light, of heaviness and lightness, of, of dampness and dryness. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned cycles and tidal systems, since it links beautifully with the next question for Federico. We're going to talk about the film, which specifically aimed at recreating these larger movements of water masses, like the ones ever present, maybe not anymore 
in Venice, natural tides, etc. Artificially, somehow while it's being constructed and set on a studio in southern Spain. Because we wonder to which extent the research and meetings with several scientists affected a research-based piece of fiction, an artificial recreation speaking from a different place, being maybe a journey in itself into micro-scale universe governed a bit like ours by weight, gravity, magnetism. Long story short, how does fiction and imagination possess of the potential for worldling, for altering the reality we perceive and our understanding in as much as reality does? I think works like John's on Cosmograms shows that the aspect of fiction, so fictionalizing and representing in, uh, through images, through um, tro mythological tropes and nominations, is a constitutive part of the way in which we understand reality. Not only is it a constitutive part, it's a necessary part. The way in which we apprehend reality is, to a certain extent, always through a fiction. When John earlier was talking about the fact that reality has an apophatic aspect, so an aspect of which we cannot speak because it's beyond our cognition, means that the bit that is within our cognition, which we call the world, is shaped in a particular form depending on how we cognize it. And our act of cognition is, a, is an act of reordering our perceptions in a particular way and adopting this reordering as a livable hypothesis. And we call it the world. And we can do it in many different ways. So to a certain extent, reality itself, as we perceive it, is always a fictional reality. It's always an hypothesis that we conjure on the basis of our perceptions, which are always only a part of what is actually there. And we combine in a particular way, in a fictional way. The term culture in some ways has baggage to it, philosophical, political, and otherwise. But looking at its earlier articulations as this very mobile set of interfaces at multiple scales for doing the art of the world, I think it has a lot of potential uh, now. So this is going to be the last question before finishing um, this amazing experience that it has been um, the conversation with you. So try not to depart completely from the potential of fiction and the ways of apprehending the world. A very last question for both of you. Maybe you can reflect or perhaps deflect, if you like, on issues such as new engineering, problem versus solution, and what it does, the worlding and its limitation. So what does it mean and how does it create new meanings and visions of the world? So the question here, to what extent the role of fiction and antiquity and its impact on imagination find its counterpart on now the others drive for technique? But still, What is the space that imagination and magic can give us as a tool to overpass the geoengineering problem-solution dichotomy? It's amazing that they brought in artists to say, can you please solve the problem of geoengineering in Venice? And good for you to step up to the challenge. Um, very impressive. And, and I think it's this kind of thinking with matter, this thinking with objects that artists um, can, can certainly should contribute. And I think framing the problem itself as in part the problem, right? That there is a, a fixed problem and then a solution which will 
more or less take the same elements and make some limited adjustment upon them and bring about an endpoint that you can conceive in those same terms. The key issue, I think, in the kind of uh, solutionism that geoengineering or a lot of the kind of scientific and engineering approaches to wicked problems like climate change or even the floods in Venice, the, the rising water, the key limitation is to draw a boundary on the things that can contribute to the problem and therefore a boundary on the things that can contribute to the solution. And the multiplicity that you are playing with and that your colleagues are playing with, I think is very crucial to keep in play. For engineers, there's a, a drawing of limitations on inputs and then therefore very limited outputs and a very limited interface between the two. And the different kinds of senses, the different kinds of matter, the different kinds of methods and approaches, different ways of being, different ways of sensing that you're bringing to the issue certainly expands the range of possibility for thought and also the range of possibility for problem solving and what a solution might look like. I'm not going to come up with a solution to geoengineering the problems of Venice or rising waters or of sinking land masses, but expanding the range of what counts as a reasonable method is, I think, essential here. And that's another reason why someone like Kierker, I think, is a, is a wonderful source for the kind of thinking and working that you're doing. His aim as a Jesuit was to proclaim the word of God and to convince people that it's the moment of counter-reformation. He is trying to bring people over to Catholicism. But what he did to reach his aim was bring in a kind of baffling range of methods, styles, media, arguments, artistic forms, objects, resources, archives to reach that aim. It was, as I, as I mentioned before, like truly Baroque at an epistemological level. Like every way of thinking about the world through magnetism, through optics, through generation, through medicine, through astrology, he brought together and they all pointed towards the same end, which is the magnificence and unknowability and mysterious power of God. The end we have in mind is some way of getting, making sense of, of the, the vast and unknowable, and yet in some ways quite recognizable world that we inhabit, such that A, we don't drown, and B, we have some kind of livable life in common with other humans and all of the non-humans that make up that world. So that's a very broad telos. And to reach such a broad telos, bringing in many, many different modes of access, many, many different kinds of argument, uh, a polyphony, uh, a very broad orchestra of instruments and, and possible solutions and possible melodies, I think is, is, is crucial. The geoengineers put themselves in a box as a, as a tool of thought, and they wind up with solutions that are therefore limited. And just to use a very old cliche, Thinking outside of the box, adding new tools to that box, expanding its limits is, I think, a great service to them and to all the rest of us who live in the world that the geoengineers are, are making. Reminds me a bit in medicine, like surgical operations. Sometimes in, when, you are, when you have a patient that is in a critical condition, you need to intervene surgically, like geoengineering. In Eastern medical traditions, surgery is a very like uh, worst case scenario kind of solution because you have to intervene on the problem ahead, you know, way before with a, with a series of things, including diet and lifestyle and movement and, and, and so on and so forth, so that you avoid the surgical intervention. 
I think the problem here is that by asking artists solutions to the geoengineering problem, there is also a sort of denial of the fact that there are solutions to the problems that are tackled by geoengineering. There are solutions that they don't need to ask any artist about. Very radical and serious social and economic reform, very radical and serious political reform. Mm. This is how you resolve problems such as water level risings and, and all these kind of things. So I think they are looking in the wrong place and they're looking in the wrong place precisely because they know exactly where it's the right place to look. Serious political reform at a global level, economically, technologically and socially. That said, I think what they are already embracing in this situation uh, by focusing so much on geoengineering, they are focusing on the idea that there will be no reform. There will be this like desperate attempt at surgery and this desperate attempt will fail which everybody knows is going to fail. Now, here artists arrive. I think there is the problem is failure. How do we deal with failure? There's many different ways of failing. Now, the, the idea that we are going to fail, I think already is very present in our imaginations about the future. Look at science fiction. It's mostly about apocalyptic, <laughs> everything destroying. I think artists, philosophers, writers, cultural producers more broadly, can help here because can bring back an old pre-modern idea, which is there is a way and way of dying. There is a way of living well and there is a way of dying well. There is a way also of failing that is beautiful, you know, that is um, cosmic in, in that sense, that is not a kind of like embarrassing catastrophe, which is the one towards which we are, we are headed. I think in the words of Don Juan, the character of Carlos Castaneda, the point sometimes is not winning or losing. The point is being impeccable. And I think this is the contribution really that artists and not only artists, musicians, philosophers can contribute to the, to the incoming failure of geoengineering and their world. Magical, Fresh and Salty Conversations is produced by TBA 21 Academy with the support of STARTS, an initiative by the European Commission. Special thanks to our hosts and guests, Diego Delas, Federico Campagna, Leonor Serrano Rivas, and John Tresh. Editor-at-Large, Maria Montero Sierra. Editing and sound design, Elena Caesar. Voiceover, Nathan Johnson. Music by Horizon Sound and underwater sound recordings of the Venetian Lagoon by Sonia Levy and Jez Riley French. Produced by Miriam Calabresa, Maria Montero Sierra, Katerina Rakuschek, and the artists. Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org or subscribe with your podcast provider.